Hey, good morning. Good to see everybody. You all ready to get into the Word of God? Yeah, amen. You're going to need your Bible nearby. Grab that handout sheet that was given to you at the front door. We're going to need all the time that we have. And I'm going to uh, give you a warning right now. You are not going to know how to feel at the end of this message. I can tell you that. You're going to be like, I don't know. Am I discouraged, encouraged? What am I doing right now? Uh, This is kind of one of those blow your hair back messages, right? So uh, obviously, we are walking through the book of Ezekiel, right? Right? That was your fault for coming to church. Uh, we are in part three of that series. There's actually seven parts to it, and we're in part three. And, and I want to begin by drawing your attention to the fill in the blank. If you're watching online, that's going to be on your app that you can fire up and take notes along with us. Um, but I want to begin with a concept that I think we know about. I'm not quite sure we think through very well. And that is, so we just came out, obviously, through the Christmas season. And the Christmas season is super weird because you have Christians and non-Christians saying phrases like, oh yeah, Jesus Christ, he was a baby, he was in a manger, he's the son of God. As if anyone knows how the heck that happened, right? I mean, think about it. What did you just, you just said that the infinite that you can't be kind to God. The son of God's not like baby God, right? You're like, oh, well, his dad's taller than him. That's not true, right? If you're God, you're God. You're all the way God. That means you've always been God, always will be God. How in the world did the infinite enter into the finite? How in the world did God get inside of a womb? And then all of a sudden you have Jesus Christ being born and ascending back to heaven. So it's like we say that phrase, Oh, Jesus was in the manger. Do you have any idea how that happened? The answer to that is no, you don't. How do I know that? Because I don't have any clue either. But in Philippians chapter two, which is Paul the apostle is kind of our first greatest theologian, he starts trying to describe it, right? And And he starts saying, well, God came into the world. He added humanity to his nature, And the infinite God entered into our reality to be part of it, to draw close to us, so he could save us and connect with us in some way. Whatever that means, the fancy word to describe it is incarnation. Now, understand this. In general, I try to avoid big words. They're not very helpful. I don't like when people try to flash them around as if that somehow makes them special. The reason... I would use a big word is if it means I can say one thing and you get a concept. That's the point and why it's beneficial, right? So if I said incarnation, you'd be like, oh, yeah, that's super complicated. Great. It's kind of like the word Trinity, right? We all say the word Trinity and we think Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but I have no idea how it all works together. But you can say one word without explaining it. That's super nice. Well, this concept of incarnation is that if I had you take a quiz and I was like, hey, did Jesus, is Jesus God? You'd be like, yep. And then you go, did Jesus come into the world? Yep. And you have that, but then if I said, all right, tell me what that has to do with us today. Or did he just do cool stuff back then? You're like, is Jesus still alive? Yep. Is Jesus still doing stuff? Yep. All right, in order to explain that dynamic relationship with us, Paul then goes on in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, and 12, and he starts trying to explain how we are connected to it all, and he uses a metaphor I think most of us are familiar with, the body of Christ. You guys have heard that, yeah? We are the body of Christ. Now, if we're on that same test, and I said, now tell me what the body of Christ means, most of us would start talking about how we're family and how we're community and how we're connected, which is true, but it's actually not the primary focus of the incarnation. The incarnation and the body of Christ, the main focus is talking about our purpose, In other words, the primary intent of the metaphor is telling us that a body 
carries out the intentions and plans of the head, right? What Jesus wants to do from heaven, we're supposed to carry out here on earth, right? Now, I'm not a scientist, but I'm pretty sure our brains tell our bodies what to do. Is that correct? Okay, so for example, in the morning, as you got up this morning and you're like, need coffee, right? Otherwise, I'm gonna be vicious to people. When you decide to make coffee, if brain says, I need coffee, what if you just said, you go, brain? Then you'd be like, I don't know how to use a Keurig. Does that make sense? So then, all of a sudden, it has to send little messages down in your feet, then walk into the kitchen, and you pull it open, right? And it says descale, and you just try to shut that off because you don't even know what that means. And then you go ahead and make your coffee. You know what I'm talking about, right? So you, you make your coffee, and you're like, oh, and the brain's like, yeah, okay. So the whole point of that is that the head is telling the body how to carry out its plans. The reason why that's so important is Jesus still has stuff he wants to do. And the only way he's getting it done nowadays is through us. We are the action items for his plans. We are intimately connected to what he wants to do. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. The incarnation didn't stop with Jesus' earthly ministry. The incarnation did not stop with Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus is alive and well, doing stuff from heaven, and we are his vehicle to get it done, right? He didn't start and stop. He started something that is still continuing to this day. There is more revelation to come. There is more miraculous to come. There is more freedom to come, but we are going to be the ones that do it on his behalf. That means we got an awful lot to do, right? But when Jesus did it here on earth, it didn't always go very easy for him. He had a lot of difficult things the Father asked him to do that he had to submit to. And if it wasn't easy for him, who should say it's easy for us? But nobody knew that better than the prophet Ezekiel. Now, I'm gonna just explain a little bit about how this series goes. It's a, it's a seven-part series, and it kind of has a trajectory, and we're on the way down, okay? So it gets worse and worse and worse and darker, and then all of a sudden, woo, it shoots up, and it is hopeful, and you're like, I love Ezekiel, but for right now, you're hating it. So I don't know what, have you guys ever heard the phrase seeker-sensitive? Anybody ever heard that phrase about a church? Seeker-sensitive means you, you say messages that are really nice for visitors. This is a seeker-repulsive message. <laughs> if you've ever heard that, that's a, <laughs> welcome to Bridgeway. <laughs> okay, so in the series, the first time we talked, part one was weird. Part two is normal. Part three today is weird. Then it goes normal, 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 weird. Okay, so if you're gonna invite friends that are weird, invite them either today or at the end. If you're trying to pretend to your friends that we're a normal church, invite the next three weeks, right? It's like bait and switch. You bring them in, they're like, oh my gosh, your church is totally normal. You're like, ha ha. <laughs> no, it's not, but now you're hooked. Okay, so <laughs> it's, it's all about manipulation. Just write this down, okay? <laughs> Praise God. So the first week, the first week that we're together, we learned, and this is the weird one, is that this, this guy who was a Jew, he was deported from his home country, and he was a, basically a, a stolen captive and refugee. He, would, he was trying to flee, but at the same time, he was captured. So he was stuck in Babylon with a bunch of other Jewish people, and he was a priest, but he operated in the prophetic, so he was a priest and a prophet. And he's hanging out in Babylon, already not enjoying things about his life, when all of a sudden God, like on a random Tuesday, sucks him up into heaven, and he gets to see heavenly reality. It's mind-blowing multi-sensory overload. He's seeing flying creatures with four wings and four faces. He's seeing the chariot of God, thrones. He's hearing stuff that is so loud, it sounds like an earthquake just when the angels move their wings. That was week one. Week two, normal week, was that God says, hey, I wanna give you your assignment. Here's why I'm showing you this. 
I'm showing it to you because what I'm gonna ask you to do is gonna be really, really hard. I'm gonna have you tell the Jewish people why everything is happening, how bad it's really going to get, and no one's gonna listen to you. So quite frankly, this is gonna be a very difficult ministry to you, right? This week, he begins to show, and we're gonna analyze all the very uncomfortable things God asked him to do over his 23-year-long ministry. Because where we left off last time, Ezekiel's not happy with his assignment. He is not only overwhelmed by it, he's angry about it. Why would he be angry to be part of something with God? That's what we're going to solve today. All right, could you turn with me to Ezekiel chapter four? Ezekiel chapter four, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the seat in front of you unless you're at home watching online. Then I'm gonna give you the page number. It is 694, Ezekiel chapter four, verse one. I'm gonna give you a lot of notes and you're gonna have time to get there. But as we begin, I'm going to give you a disclaimer, a warning disclaimer. And that is, what we're going to talk about is so extreme and it's a one-off, okay? What I mean by that is the stuff God asked Ezekiel to do is not stuff anyone here is going to expect God is going to ask you to do. And the reason why I highlight that is because in mental illness throughout the United States, historically, people have said, God told me to X. And whatever they said, God, I can assure you, did not tell them to do that, but they're totally convinced. What I don't wanna do in this sermon is add to that fuel into that fire, right? God's not gonna ask you to do this, but he is gonna ask you to do uncomfortable stuff. And one of the reasons he gives us the extreme examples is so we can dial it back and say, well, what would a normal example be that God's gonna ask me to step out of my comfort zone, right? Some things in the Bible are one-offs. There are not a lot of people asked to build an ark when it hasn't rained and God's going to destroy the entire planet. That happened once, okay? There's not a lot of analogies where God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son because people that are maybe not tracking right, God told me to do this to my family. Stop with all that. That was a one-off. God didn't want his child to die. God wanted obedience and then he spun it out and around. So I wanna be very clear, as much as I'm okay with this message making you unsettled, I am not cool with this message speaking in and allowing the enemy to somehow make it say something it didn't say. Are we clear on that one? All right, cool. So what we're gonna do is if you're a note taker, you might wanna get into this a little bit. It just makes it a little bit more fun to jot down with me. So what I'm gonna do is talk about some of the strange assignments that God gave to Ezekiel, and they're pretty, pretty weird. The point on why God asked him to do it was to create a living illustration. You guys know how it says a picture's worth a thousand words. You know the power of art. What it means is, is not only is somebody hearing information transfer, but they feel something about it. If somebody said to you, watch out, and they said it really gentle, watch out, you're not going to move. If they scream at you, watch out, you're gonna duck because it creates an emotional tie to the message and it has more impact on you. That's why God is using him as a prophet play-acting role. Does that make sense? So you're like, well, why would he ask him to do all this weird stuff? Because God wanted his message to be fully heard, fully felt. All right, so I'm gonna lead you through a list, and one of them I'm not even gonna put on the list because we covered it last week. Anybody remember anything odd God asked Ezekiel to do in last week's message? Eat a scroll, that's not normal, right? We were all supposed to be trained out of eating paper, right? And so he says, I want you to eat this massive parchment. That's weird, okay? And he was like, he's eating a massive parchment. It was just a very strange thing, right? 
Okay, that's not, we're not even getting that one on the list. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna explain six other very, in my mind, comparatively tame, but very strange things that God asked him to do. Now, the only way to appreciate this message and involve yourself in it is to picture God asked you to do each one of these things at the Galleria Mall. <laughs> you got the email that you're supposed to do all these things in the mall during Christmas time, all right? Here we go. So we're gonna go uh, in increasing discomfort. Is that cool? We're gonna go, so we'll start out easy with you. Okay, so the first one, <clears throat> just if you're taking notes, just write this down. Weep and wail in public. Weep and wail in public. All right, so God told Ezekiel, go out to the public square and just start mourning at the top of your voice. Oh my gosh, right. Now when you're talking about East, Eastern stuff, we're talking about when you mourn and cry about something, boy, your job is to let it go. Right, it is not this, I'm gonna quietly mourn stuff. It is all out there. So he's supposed to yell and oh, this is horrible. And then really, he's like, but God, nothing's going on wrong. He's like, doesn't matter, I just need you to act like it. So he's like, oh, I'm so horrible. What's the point of that? The point is very simple. The judgment God is going to bring on Israel is gonna make people so sad and upset that they're gonna be sounding like this, right? You go, all right, that does seem uncomfortable, but maybe I could make it through that one. All right, number two, preach to the mountains. Preach to the mountains and just add, and animals. So two times, God asked him to go outside and preach to the hills. Now this is weird. Hey, hills, I have a message for you. Now, there's no point in doing it unless everyone's watching you. So you're now preaching to inanimate objects. That's very strange, is it not? Now don't get me wrong, I'm an animal lover. I'm all down with preaching to animals. You know what I'm saying? Like in my backyard a couple times, I've brought out some treats and I try to get the squirrels to come over and I share the Lord with them. I actually just spend a little time in God's word. You know what I'm saying? And they're, like, gah, 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 and they're eating, I think they're listening, I don't know. But anyway, it's not important. He's preaching out and you go, well what's the point of that? The point was, hey, area around Israel, because of the people's disobedience, you're gonna get tore up too. You're collateral damage, and I'm sorry about that, but it's so bad, I need to even have the land reject these people out of it, right? You're like, oh, deep meaning. Yeah, but you look like an idiot, right? All right, let's go to number three. Odd physical signs. Odd physical signs, this is a catch-all to kind of give you an example of the weird stuff God asked him to do publicly. First one, strike your thigh loudly and repeatedly. Now this is just weird. I don't know how this goes because you gotta practice like, uh, and you're like, well that wasn't very loud. I mean, like is he hitting his thigh? What is he doing right now? And I thought, if you're really good at it, you can do a ham bone kind of, you know what I'm saying? Like you play, I don't know what he was doing, but he's hitting his thigh really hard. Then God's like, clap real loud. And you're like, I'm clapping as loud as I can. And he's like, louder. And you're like, ow, this hurts. Okay, so then all of a sudden he's like, grab two sticks. You're like, I got two sticks. He's like, put them together. You're like, yeah. And he's like, swing it around. You're like, okay. Well, that was north and south is going to be reunited into one nation. You're like, oh, that's deep. Okay, now grab a sword. Grab a what? Grab a sword. I don't have a sword. Get one. You don't have a sword. Now just swing it around. Woo! You're now just hacking into the air. This makes friends walk away, right? You don't want to get next to sword swinging guy. Something's wrong with that dude, okay? So you're just randomly swinging away and hacking away. Then he's, God's like, I want you to make a road sign. He's like, a what? A road sign. You go this way and that way, make a physical road sign and set it out so when the invading king comes in, he knows he has options. That's really weird. He's like, yeah, I know. Okay, great. All right, so there's a whole series of very odd movements that he's supposed to do while he's preaching. And it basically just makes him look crazy. It makes everybody disrespect him. 
And I think we all know how it feels when we don't feel accepted, normal, stuff like that, right? That's tough. So God pushed his limits. Number four, let's go increasing. Number four, God asked him, and because we have a mixed crowd, I'm going to try to do this as gently as possible, um, but God had him say very dark, very explicit, and very messed up things. In chapter 23, by itself, it talks about two sisters. And you have to remember, he's preaching in public around children. Now, you gotta imagine that the stuff he's saying, a lot of it's sexual, a lot of it's very dark, a lot of it's weird. And so you can imagine everybody around him is like, what is wrong with you? Why would you say that? Why would you do that? What, you don't think my grandkid here needs, what, do you think they need to hear that kind of trash? He's only allowed to say what God tells him to say. He's talking about these two sisters and they're prostitutes and then this happens and they're like animals in heat. and it, I mean, it's just the most extreme that all of a sudden the violence comes in and things are torn off of them and these are his messages. And you're like, well, nobody's going to assume that God told me to say that. They're gonna assume I came up with it. I didn't come up with this. And it just makes things weirder. What is that story actually about? The North and the South are like two sisters. They were so unfaithful to God, they ended up becoming destroyed. But you go, well, I wish you would've just said that. Nope, gotta be weird. All right, let's keep going. Number five, write down bound and mute. Bound and mute. God says, hey, and this is kind of takes off where we left off last week. Hey, I want you to go home and have somebody tie you up. Tie me up with like what? Well, like ropes. Really? Okay, tie you up, and I'm gonna strike you mute. You will not be able to talk unless I have something to say. Well, like for how long? I don't wanna get into it. I wanna get into it. I would love to know how long. And what's interesting is it depends on how you read the passage as to how long this actually occurred. Because on the outside, it is possible it occurred during this whole illustration, which was a year and a half. Okay, that's a really long time, and we'll get into that in a moment. But when you're mute, you can't explain yourself, recorrect your reputation, you can't do any of that. You just have to say what God says and leave it. That's really uncomfortable, right? And the point of that was that God is in full control, okay? Uh, here's number six, secret trip. Just write down secret trip. Here's what God said, and I think this is so awkward. He's like, all right, Ezekiel, I want you to go out and buy some luggage. He's like, luggage? Where am I going? Nowhere. You're like, why do I need luggage? Because you need it. Grab some luggage, and I want you to pack like you're packing for a trip that you're gonna go away on, but you're never coming back. Oh my gosh, I need my hair dryer, right? You know, stuff like that. And he's like, pack it all up, and in the dusk, while everyone's watching you, I want you to sneak out of your house. Well, it's already my house. Why do I need to sneak out? Doesn't matter. Sneak out at night, have everybody follow you, and I want you to dig through the wall with your hands. Well, how long is that gonna take? I don't know, but now you look like a dog. You're like, trying to dig through, and I would imagine the wall's pretty thick, or it's not a wall. Right, So you're digging through, and then he said, when you are taking breaks to eat or drink, I want you to look terrified. I want you to shake. So you're like, oh, my water bottle, uh, and it's getting all over the place. You're doing all that, you don't feel it, you're just play acting, and I want you to sneak out of the wall. Okay, that's weird, yes? What was his point? Well, when a siege hits, People are gonna try to flee and they're gonna be scared out of their minds and they're gonna try to go out in secret ways and they're gonna know they're never coming home again. You're like, well, that, can't I just tell them that? No, you need to do something weird. All right. Now, thankfully, we don't have to get into all the times that other people, Isaiah, Samuel, excuse me, Saul, Jesus, they were all required to be naked in public to varying degrees. Isaiah had to have his rear end opened to the air for three years as he walked around and prophesied. Nothing odd about that. 
Saul prophesied in his underwear, Jesus hung on the cross likely naked. So you have all these, oh my gosh, I don't have the body image to handle that, right? That kind of stuff, yeah? All right, so this is kind of the stuff over the 23 years that God was asking Ezekiel to do. What you and I are gonna do this morning is study the actually really bad ones. So everything you heard that, that's tame. Let's kick it up. All right, here we go. Ezekiel chapter four, verse one. Ezekiel chapter four, verse one. Hopefully you're there with me, page 694. Here we go. I'm gonna read a little bit and then we'll study it. Slow it down a little bit. And you, son of man, God said, or you, human being, take a brick and lay it before you and engrave on it the name Jerusalem. Put siege works against it and build a siege wall against it and cast up a mound ramp against it. Set camps against it and plant battering rams against it and take an iron griddle and place it as an iron wall between you and the city and make sure you are facing it and let it be in a state of siege and press the siege. This is a sign. Okay, stop. Does anybody know the instructions? <laughs> I feel like you're going slow down. Hold on, what am I doing? What is happening? He goes, okay, let's make this simple. Do you have a brick? Well, yeah, I can get a brick. Get a brick. Well, what kind of brick? A clay brick. And on the brick, I want you to etch in there Jerusalem like it's going to stand for the city. Well, what am I gonna do? Well, you can draw little windows on it, whatever you wanna do, but I want you to sit it in the middle and then I want you to play army men and attack the brick. I'm sorry, you're gonna do what? Well, you're gonna make little things. You're gonna scoop up dirt towards it and you're gonna be like, oh, here I come, ah. And you're gonna play, act, little army men while everyone's watching you, okay? Now you're gonna be laying down when you do it. And then you have battering rams. You're like, oh, here I come. Oh, attack, attack, attack. You think anybody's taking you seriously at this point, right? And then I want you to grab an iron griddle. He's like, hey, I have an iron griddle. <laughs> okay, an iron griddle is what, how you cook flatbread over a fire, right? Take your iron griddle and put it between you and the brick. He's like, why? Because there's an immovable wall between me and my chosen people. I am going to do it and there's nothing that's going to change this, right? And he's like, okay, that feels really odd. Iron griddle here, right? Okay, so what's intriguing about this is you start reading this, and this is probably why you don't do devotions in the morning in Ezekiel. <laughs> You're like, what does this have to do with me? Right, well, I don't know. After what you just heard, in my mind, two things jumps out at me that I think actually we can apply to our lives. The first one, our sinfulness blocks us from God's blessings. Listen, we're not in the Old Testament covenant where if you, whoever sins ends up being cursed and all that, no, no, no. When Jesus Christ comes into our life and purifies us and cleanses us and puts us into child status, we are perpetually in a state of grace. The unfortunate part is then we start thinking that our actions and sin doesn't matter anymore. We can do whatever we want because we're forgiven. Remember, just because Jesus is paying for it doesn't mean it doesn't cost. Does that make sense? And too many of us, we believe we can live our lives however we want and it's not going to cause an effect on our relationship. It is, because God wants to breathe through you, God wants to encourage you, God wants to pour blessings through you, God wants to do things through you, and when you are living in a state of rebellion, he can't do that. It does matter how we live, right? I can see that. The other thing that I would probably take from this is sometimes God's doing the humbling on purpose. We tend to go through our lives and we're like, oh, everything's happening to me, I'm the victim. Well, hold on, sometimes that's true, but sometimes God uses a scenario very specifically to humble you and re-rack you. Do you know how many people I know are better people today since the 2008 recession than they were before? What's my point? They were so into money, they were so into their home, they were so, and they lost everything. 
and God did a huge re-rack on them. In that circumstance, God was allowing things to occur to bring a humbling and a flip-flop in how they perceive things. God's allowed to do that. And in this case, he's like, hey, Jewish people, this isn't just happening to you. I'm your problem. I'm coming after you. So that's gonna be an issue for you. You got nowhere to hide, right? All right, let's pick it up as it keeps getting weirder. Verse four. Then I want you, while you're playing army men, to lie on your side facing the brick and place the punishment of the house of Israel upon it. For the number of days that you lie on it, you shall bear their punishment. For I assign to you a number of days, 390 days, equal to the number of the years of their bad behavior that trigger this punishment. So long shall you bear the difficulty of the house of Israel. When you have completed these, you shall lie down a second time, but this time on your right side, 40 days I assign you, a day for each year, and you will set your face towards the siege of Jerusalem with your arm bared, and you shall prophesy against the city, and behold, I will place cords to tie you up so you cannot turn from one side to the other till you've completed the days of your siege. I'm sorry, how long? 390 days. Anybody know how long a year is? 365. Longer than a year. Okay, it's one thing to do a lousy message, right? Where you're kind of like, I preached the message, it's over. It's another thing to say, hey, I'm doing an illustration for a day and people are gonna look at it. This is over a year illustration. Isn't everybody sick and tired of it? Isn't, hey, that was interesting, dude, for like a month. You're still there. For over a year, he's tied up and laying on his left side. Now, is it continual? No. In my opinion, it is not continual. It is likely he was tied up and laid on his side during high visibility hours. Let's say he would do six-hour shifts, seven-hour shifts, and we know that because of the other things he had to do during this period, right? But still, imagine God asked you to lay on your side for six to eight hours a day for over a year. When you're done on your left side, like a rotisserie chicken, you have to flip over on your right side and you got another 40 to go. That's super weird, right? Uh, so for you Bible nerds, question, the 390 years, everything seems to hinge around a certain date in history, and that was when Jerusalem was taken over. That was 586 BC. Are the 390 years representing how they got to that punishment and you go backwards? Or is it saying now that you've done that, you will be punished forward for 390 years? Now, most of you don't care about this. I view that it's reflecting on how long they've been disobedient, and here's why. If you go 586 and go backwards 390 years, you end up in Solomon's reign. And that gets you roughly near the date that Solomon finished his temple and the Holy Spirit came into it. What would that mean? God is saying, hey kids, when I came into your temple, that was supposed to be our greatest era ever. But from the moment I got in that temple, you have been rebelling against me and falling apart. If you look historically, do you remember? The nation of Israel began to schism in Solomon's reign. It should have been their best time ever. The only reason it didn't split during Solomon's reign is because God promised David it wouldn't. Right after Solomon, boom, we have north and south and they're fighting. God's point was, man, I have been working with you and working with you for the longest time. So does this have any application to us? Yes. Do you realize how patient God is? Have you guys, now I don't know how long you've been in the church, but does anybody have an experience, and you could probably raise your hand, I think this would be pretty amazing. Anybody have the experience where somebody just spontaneously combusted due to their sin in the service. Anybody have that experience? 
you know, because I, I feel like that would make church interactive. Um, I, I, you have to have like flame retardant chairs and all that. Okay, so if you're just like, you know, finally you're in the middle of a song and they just blow up and you're like, wow, that, I, guess, I guess we reached the max, <laughs> right? I mean, that would be weird. Nobody sees that, right? And so what you're saying is it's not that we're not worthy of getting blown up, it's God's patience. It's God constantly going, hey, kiddos, I'm gonna whisper, how about we make a change? Hey, kids, that's not what I built you for. Hey, kiddo, that's not your identity. Hey, you know what? I made you for more. You're gonna have the sweet, gentle whisper of God going through your life over and over and over while he's trying to woo you to do the right thing as a gentle parent. But at some point, he has to amp it up and get your attention. I mean, we're talking 390 years of warning before he got into this place. God is so patient, right? All right, here we go. Let's get it a little weirder. Let's pick it up in verse nine. While you're laying on your side playing army men tied up and mute, take wheat, barley, beans, lentils, millet, and emmer, and make a loaf. During the number of days you lie on your side, 390 days, you're gonna eat that loaf. Each day shall be weighed on how much you eat, eight ounces a day. Water, two-thirds of a quart. And you shall eat it as a barley cake baked in their sight on human dung. Let's just pause. <laughs> Let that just settle in. Mm-mm. What's the flavoring? <laughs> Smells mesquite. All right. Verse 13, and the Lord said, thus shall the people of Israel eat their bread unclean among the nations where I drive them. Then I, Ezekiel, said, Lord God, behold, I have never defiled myself. From my youth up till now, I have never eaten random dead animals, never eaten roadkill, never eaten decomposed meat. I can't do this. And God said, all right, I will assign you cow's dung instead of human dung. Then he said, I will break the supply of bread in Jerusalem and starve them out. They will eat with anxiety and drink water in limited portions, and I will do this because of their punishment. All right, that's a different level. Right? And I think it's funny where Ezekiel finally just loses it, right? He's like, all right, I'm cool with getting tied up. I'm cool with laying on my side. Human dung? No way! And he's just like, he launches back, and God's like, hey, whoa there, Charlie. Right? And I think it's really sweet that God's like, all right, you get a cow patty. And he's like, yeah! Woo! It's all I wanted. And you're like, this is so odd, <laughs> right? Okay, so uh, excrement of any sort is a very flammable item. And so a lot of Bedouins and stuff like that, they'll use different things like that as cooking because you don't have other fuel or wood or stuff like that. The problem is, is that in Israel, under Mosaic Code, human excrement is unclean. You gotta keep it out of the city. So for a priest to have that anywhere near him while he's cooking food makes him feel ritually unclean. Even if God asked him to do it, he's like, you are freaking my conscience out. I can't even focus right now. Please don't ask me to do that. And God's like, all right, fine, we'll go with an illustration. You can use cow poop. Man, that's weird, is it not? You're like... What do we take from that? You're like, Pastor, I have no idea what you're gonna say. I dare you to make a connection here, <laughs> right? Challenge accepted. <clears throat> Here's what I take from that. You guys, we sanitize God way too much. This whole business where, oh, it's the flannel graph Jesus from Sunday school, and he's the nicest, and he does everything appropriate and proper, and oh, we sit in our little seats, and everything's clean. God would never ask me to be uncomfortable. God would never ask me to do anything weird. Oh, he's westernized. Oh, he's modern. Oh, stop. 
He is from an Eastern mindset, and there is mystery and mess all over the place. The Bible has never been safe for the whole family. Let's be real clear on this. This whole cleanup, I'm gonna, oh, we only say appropriate things and proper things. Where'd you get that idea? It's not in the Bible. So this whole thing where we put God in some type of sanitized box means you're gonna come to a collision when something radical hits your life. Let God be God and stop making him like us. Does that make sense? All right, let's move forward. Chapter five, verse one, we're not done. And you, son of man, take a sharp sword. Use it as a barber's razor. Pass it over your head and your beard. Balance it with scales. A third part burn in the fire in the city. A third part strike with a sword around the city. And a third part scatter it to the wind. Then take a little tiny amount from each pile and put them in the skirts of your robe. Then take even a portion of those little ones and burn some of them in the fire. Okay, you guys tracking? Shave your head with a sword. Well, can I use a regular razor? No. Okay, scrape, 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 ah, scrape, scrape, right? And then I'm cutting it, and then make a pile of hair. Take it, balance it perfectly into thirds. I want you to go out and just light up the little bick, light that hair on fire in the middle of the city because I'm gonna burn the city with fire and people are going to die in that burning. Then I want you to take it and go chop, 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 and you let it all fall over the city because people are gonna die by the sword. Then I want you to go outside with a third of it and let it go out into the wind because people are gonna be scattered in fear all across the planet. But I always have my remnant and I want you to take a little portion of it and hide it in your pocket. Now, some of that is still gonna get burned. I get it. But I want you to hide a little portion away because that's what I'm gonna do. Huh, what does that mean? God always keeps a remnant. You see, God promised the Jewish people there would always be someone in their land. How do you do that when you have to kick them all out of their land? You take away all the biggest, baddest, brightest, and you keep just the tiny little poor. And God says, I always keep my promises. I'm always a winner. Even your sin can't stop my promises. I know what I'm doing. God is good at that, right? Now, when you take all that and you're like, man, that was one weird illustration, is it not? Well, there's one worse. We'll just finish with that, okay? Here we go. Pick it up in chapter 24, verse 15. Chapter 24, 15. The word of Yahweh came to me. Son of man, behold, I'm about to take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke. Yet you will not mourn or weep or let your tears run down. You can sigh but not out loud. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your celebration turban and put your shoes on your feet. Don't cover your face or eat morning bread. So I spoke to the people in the morning and at evening my wife died. And on the next morning I did as I was commanded. Well, that's pretty heavy. Like, like are we saying that it happened to coincide with her death? You're not telling me that God killed her as an illustration, right? I don't know, I guess to Ezekiel, does it matter? He lost his greatest love. That's heartbreaking. Do you understand now why he had such a hard time with his assignment? I don't know what you've ever gone through if God asked you to pray for somebody at Starbucks and you felt weird. Right? I don't know whether or not, oh my gosh, I, I've never raised my hands in worship. Do you understand how extreme this is? So you can dial it all the way back and say, what am I worried about? The point of this illustration was that how Ezekiel felt about his wife, God felt about the temple. And because of their sin, God 
lost his temple. And he wanted all the Jewish people that thought the temple was the coolest thing ever, that was the pride, God's ours, we're amazing, all of it's going, all of it's gonna get burned down. And that's supposed to horrify everybody, but they don't get to mourn about it because when that happens, they're gonna be drugged into captivity and nobody in captivity is given room to mourn. That's harsh. That's tough. Whenever God asks us to do something that we consider uncomfortable or too much, we have three options. You can either change your perspective and lean into it. That's what John the Baptist did. John the Baptist had this motto of life that was, Jesus must increase and I must what? Decrease. He bought in. Or you can resist it totally, which is what Jonah did, and that didn't go super well. Or you can do it by gritting your teeth and pushing through, and that's what Ezekiel's doing. He doesn't like any of this, but he has to because of his calling. All right, so as we wrap, there were three quick things that I just want you to jot down on your note that I think that we need to take from all of this. Told you you're not gonna know how to feel after this message, right? You got a lot of emotions going, yeah? Your first thing is, Lord, please don't send me to the Galleria Mall, <laughs> right? Number one, write this down, we're here for God's use. We're here for God's use. Please do not buy into the cultural narrative that the world revolves around you. That somehow it's our job to grab everything we can about life, make the most money, be the most impressive. If you do that, you will live a life of dissatisfaction and disappointment. Because you were built to be with God and serve God. Now, what that means, however, is that God gets to call the shots, and that's difficult. Number two, God isn't concerned by what concerns us. God isn't concerned by what concerns us. God will walk right up to bullies. You and I don't because we're afraid. He's not afraid of anybody. So he pushes us in areas that we're like, Lord, I can't do that. And he's like, I can, right? As a matter of fact, he's not insecure. So he's gonna walk wherever he wants to walk and do whatever he wants to do. That's God, that's the Holy Spirit. He isn't hesitant, so he's gonna push us further than we're comfortable with. Unless we align our core values with him, certain things we're gonna say no to. For example, if you're all about God, the story of the Good Samaritan helping somebody you don't like from your own cost at your own discomfort, if you're aligned with God, that can happen. If you're all about you, I got places to go, people to see, money to make, that story's never happening in your life, right? God is not interested in your cool reputation. God, I'm not gonna do that, that would be embarrassing. Wait, wait, hold on, embarrassing to who? Well, embarrassing to me. Wait, who said that you weren't gonna get embarrassed? Well, I have a reputation to uphold. Oh, do you? So I'm sorry, are you building your kingdom or my kingdom? What are we doing here? Well, then people aren't gonna look at me, look at you what? Like you want them to look at you? You care way too much about what people think of you. Is that true? Do we care too much about what people think of us? I do. How do I know that? Because I've said no to God about a million times. Because it's awkward. And that's embarrassing to me. The only thing that helps keeping me push forward is I know one day I'm gonna be up in heaven surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses and I'm gonna be chatting and hanging out around a fire with a bunch of martyrs who were burned to the stake. And they're gonna go, what persecution did you have? And I was like, well, one time I had to pray for this really weird person. <laughs> they're like, oh, did he slit your throat? You're like, no, I was just uncomfortable. Number three, write this down, both words and actions matter. You see, 
the reason why Ezekiel's ministry was so powerful is that what he was saying and what they were seeing connected. Unfortunately, in today's world, many Christians have a lot of head knowledge and they're talking a lot, but they're not very loving in their actions and they don't back up any of their truth. So no one's listening, right? And then other people, man, you are nails. The way you live, you're so loving, so kind, so moral, so holy, but you're too shy to ever open your mouth and tell anyone about Jesus, and so people just think you're a nice person. Neither one of those are gonna advance the kingdom of God. It's when, here's what a Christian should do. You live a life that is so loving and it establishes so much trust that when you open your mouth, they can see it in the way that you intended it, they can hear it for them, and they can be transformed by it. That's our job, right? The one thing we can be sure of is God's not asking us to do Ezekiel stuff, but he is gonna ask you to do something uncomfortable. Ezekiel didn't hold back. We will be accountable for the areas where we hold back, right? Because there's certain areas of our life where we said, Lord, you can have access to all of this, but not this. I'm not so sure that we have the right to hold that back. Can I have the prayer team come on up here as we close out? Let me just pray us out. You guys, there's opportunities that God's giving us all the time, but until we care about what he cares about, they're going to seem not like us. What I'm gonna pray for is that little by little we begin to think through his lens, love what he loves, and do what he does, amen? Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you. In this moment, we wanna prepare a yes on our lips. We wanna tell you, God, that you are allowed to use us when you need to get something done. If somebody needs a hug, we're the ones there. If somebody needs an encouragement, we're there. If somebody needs prayer, we're there. If somebody needs money, we're gonna be there. If somebody needs something that cares for them, we're gonna be there. So Lord, I just pray right now that you would help us to pre-align in advance so that God, when you ask us, it just seems to be in alignment with how we think and that it would not be as difficult. Lord, we are cautious but optimistic. We believe, Lord, truly you wanna do things in us and through us, so we wanna say yes this morning for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.